Welcome to Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future with Dr. Bill Joby. Doc is a historian and a reenactor. On this show, you'll hear his thoughts about our personal liberties from their earliest recorded beginnings. You'll also be transported back to the 1750s to relive the life of Colonel George Washington and his adventures during the French and Indian War. Let's get started. Here's Dr. Bill Choby. Hello there again, Dr. Bill Choby on a podcast here of Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future. We continue our discussion about the, the development of freedom and liberty in America. And uh, my last episode, we talked about the Constitution briefly. Uh, but in the meantime, I thought, and my, my book doesn't go into too much detail on this, but I thought it was appropriate I interject a little bit uh, information to sort of set the tone of what was the being thought out loud uh, at the time that the Constitution was developed. Now, mind you, the War for Independence uh, ended in uh, 17 and 81, and only after that did we have a form of a, a formal form of, of government, and that was under the Articles of Confederation. And it, it, in fact, was our our first real constitution, although it wasn't much of anything. Uh, and the, the Articles of Confederation, uh, as I think we established before, that there was to be a perpetual union of the. the uh, colonies at the time, and with that, it was it was a very imperfect document, but it did have some structure. It did call everybody together. So uh, the um, as time went on, though, there was troubles with the, the the money and the value of the money, and there were disputes between the colonies. And they they realized that it also at the time it was just one branch of government, and so there was a lot of bickering and infighting and discontent with that document. But in the process of that, um, the um, the Articles of Confederation needed to be revised, and in seventeen and eighty six, this was uh, pretty much on the verge of collapse with the uh, uh, Shays Rebellion that was going on. And, that was in March of uh, 1787. This was a rebellion against the original early governments. And so it, um, they had to come up with something better. So they, they got their minds together in the Articles of Confederation, and they had um, had a problem with how the leadership was going to be handled. And so through 1784 and 1786, it was the courts and everything were fighting back and forth. So a, a little-known fact to our early um, uh government was that we had presidents um, in Congress assembled before we got to George Washington. So they, they had a, um, when they, they came up with the Articles of Confederation, that allowed them to, um, to choose a, a president who would supposedly preside over the uh, one branch government. And every year there would be a new president. There were 10 in total. And the, the, uh, the ninth one, was um, Arthur St. Clair from Western Pennsylvania. And he was a, a general with uh, served with Washington at uh, the whole way through from Valley Forge to Yorktown. Eventually, uh, even afterwards, he was appointed to a position by uh, to be governor of the Northwest Territories, a, a thing that I'd like to discuss a little later with you. But with these, uh, the 10 gentlemen presiding over Congress and all the conflicts and everything else. I mean, they didn't want to repeat this uh, whole king thing, king for life kind of stuff. So with the uh, 
they, they went on to revise the Articles of Confederation. But while they were, and, and the goal of that was in 1787, was to create a constitution, a more perfect union. But in the meantime, with that, they did pass some bills and things. And one of them was the Northwest Ordinance. Now, the Northwest Territories were those that were north and west of the Ohio River. And so that puts us all the whole way over to the state of Illinois, uh, Ohio, and uh, parts of uh, Indiana and, and such. And it's it's important to look at that document because this is 1787. These are the minds that are going to be picking apart later in 1787 when they're at the Constitutional Convention, uh, again, appointed by Arthur St. Clair, the president and Congress assembled. And he was the one that actually moved to have this done. And he also was the one that selected George Washington to preside over that first uh, that. Uh, constitutional convention so if let's take for a moment let's go to the um the northwest territory ordinance now this is um many people don't may not be aware of it but i think it's uh it's important that when we we look at this uh it was officially titled an ordinance for the government of the territory of the united states northwest of the river ohio and it was adopted by the confederation congress on july 13th of 1787 under the Articles of Confederation. When you look through this, it has a number of articles and a number of sections and things in it. So I'm just going to pick out a few things that will sort of show you what the, the, the real, the form that, that was in the minds of the people just prior to the Constitutional Convention that this was passed. In Section 13, Article 1, Section 13, it says, uh, and I quote, and for extending the fundamental principles of civil and religious liberty, which form the basis whereupon these republics, their laws and constitutions are erected to fix and establish those principles as the basis of all laws, constitutions and governments, which forever hereafter will be formed in the said territory to also provide for the establishment of states and permanent government and their admission to share in the federal uh, councils in equal footing with the original states as the early period may be consistent with the general interest. So here we see the basic forms of uh, religious civil liberties that eventually became uh, codified in the Bill of Rights. So we'll talk about that a little later. But this shows the thinking that was going along by the people who were trying to, they were creating our government. Now, Article 3, Section, uh, Article 3 says, Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall ever be encouraged. Here's where the government established uh, schools in the first time ever, 1787, and in the Northwest Territories. So, and then Article 6 goes on to say, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territories. So, 1787, slavery was abolished from those territories, which eventually became states that were north and west of the Ohio River. That's what's going on in the minds of these guys. So, now we take that and then we apply that to uh, what we have for the... Um, the Constitutional Convention and what the kinds of things that were going on and what we found in eventually in the proposed Constitution. Now, we know that some of these have been amended, but uh, the point is I'm, I'm trying to show that uh, a couple of things, that these, these people were very, um, very much moral people, and they were moral by the, the, uh, um, the, the, the morals of Judeo-Christianity. 
and that they established a republic, not a democracy. The word democracy does not appear in the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the Northwest Territories, or the Constitution, or the Bill of Rights. It is not a word to describe our government by any means. But in looking at the Constitution as it was passed, um, I'd like to get down through some of these things. Now, now the one that's, uh, that many people who talk about the um, uh, problems with slavery and the, the issues that we were being faced at the time, and, and particularly in Article 2, Section 2, it says, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers. Now, here's the key, which will be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for terms of year, excluding the Indians, not tax, three-fifths of all other persons. Now, this is, this is basically what this means to slaves. Now, why would they say three-fifths of all other persons? Well, the debate in Congress at the time, or the, the convention at the time, was that the southern states, their populations were, were uh, significant for slaves. In fact, with the, counting all the slaves, they would literally outnumber the, um, the other uh, new states. So do, Congress would be dominated by uh, states that, um, through, through the numbers of people, number of representatives they had, that they'd be dominated by people in favor of continuing slavery. So in order to reduce the effect of the southern states, which were pro-slavery, the, uh, the compromise was that three-fifths of the, those other persons would count towards the representatives and direct taxes, not a full person, just like the Indians that were not counted. But this is not to meant that they are anything less than people or anything less than citizens. But it was, in fact, the first attempt to uh, remove slavery from the entire uh, United States of America. Of course, we know this was repealed by the 13th Amendment uh, later on. Uh, but now we go on to another, uh, moving right down through the Constitution, and I'll come back to this kind of stuff now and then. But for now, in Article 1, Section 3, it talks about the Senate. And the Senate at the time originally, and I will quote, the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators of, from each state chosen by the legislature thereof for six years, and each senator must have one vote. The senators at the time of the founding were to represent the interest of the states, the collective interest of the state governments. It's not that they're not, they were not to be uh, reflecting the interest of the populace. They were reflecting, they were to represent the states for just reason. There are things that are much greater than just individual citizens that the state represents. So with the senators being appointed by the states, uh, then they, the state government would have uh, a, a seat, if you will, at the government in Washington. This later was was revealed. Uh, changed by the, the direct election of senators in the 17th Amendment. And that was a, a very significant blow to one of the um, uh, uh, balancing uh, uh, principles that we had in Washington. And now when we see elections that are going on uh, with the senators, they're the same as any, any other uh, state rep or house representative. They're no different. They're, and they're subjected to the polls and the financing and all of this sort of stuff. And they'll go out and they'll, you know, do whatever the, the electorate tells them. But the, at the same time, <clears throat> and in Pennsylvania, this is very, very pertinent because we had an election recently of a senator who was basically not physically capable 
of doing the job, but because he was elected uh, as a knee-jerk reaction to uh, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade and move that uh, whole decision about abortion back to the states. It was a settled deal. But the uh, Democrat senator from Pennsylvania, uh, Mr. Fetterman, basically used uh, abortion, a settled issue, as a way to get elected. Now, as far as the state was concerned, they had the victory when the Supreme Court turned it back into their hands. So there was no need to be able to use that as an issue to, to run on. But Mr. Fetterman did that. And we've seen afterwards, he he's had some very serious uh, struggles with uh, his, his health after his uh, uh, stroke that he had. Uh, this would have never happened if the original uh, writing of the, the uh, Constitution had these senators selected by the legislator. A legislative body would have never picked somebody who is uh, physically handicapped uh, to represent the state. And because of this, the Pennsylvanians have not had a full working senator, one of the two full senators, as a full working representative doing their job for oh, now we're at probably six months or more. So that there are there were problems with some of the amendments as time went on. We we can discuss that later. But here's uh, here's something that I want to point out that people object to saying that our country is a Christian nation. We look at Article 1, Section 7, and it's a long paragraph. But in the middle of it, it talks about how bills are passed. And after the bill is passed in the House and the Senate, it goes over to the president. And this is the president's uh, duty next is in this quote. If any bill shall not be returned by the president with 10 days, parentheses, Sundays accepted, parentheses, after it shall have been presented to him, the same shall become a law in a matter as if he had signed it. Keyword. Sundays accepted. It's in the Constitution. Look it up. Article 1, Section 7. Sundays has been widely accepted as being a Judeo-Christian, the first day of the week, day of the Lord. Now, furthering on through this Article 9 about the powers to deny Congress, there's another important thing that relates to slavery. The, uh, and I quote, uh, powers denied Congress, the, the migration of or importation of such persons, here's that word again, which basically is slaves, as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit, shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1,808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not to exceed $10 for each person. Here again, this is a compromise to the southern states to get them to go along with the Constitution. So they they basically said Congress can't change this for at least until after uh, 1808 to give the states an opportunity, the southern states, an opportunity to deal with this issue. So for 10 years, or not, not quite 10 years, but for um, a period of time, they could not do anything to stop the importation or migration of slaves. Again, this is the mindset that was going on with these guys. <laughs> Excuse me. Now, Article 4, Section 2, we look at, um, again, there's another issue of sorts here related to slavery. No person held in service, quote, no person held in service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another shall, in any consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim the party to whom such service or labor may be due. So if he had a, a slave to runaway slave, uh, and went to another state was caught. He had to be returned. But we know we, there was an underground railroad with the northern states uh, had there where they were free. 
um, they would, this did not happen. So uh, section four, the, um, here's another thing that re- relates to what kind of government we have. The United, quote, the United States shall guarantee to each state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and upon application of the legislature, etc. A Republican form of government. Any state that chooses to join must have a Republican form of government. And it's because they're all Republican forms of government. We have a United States, not a bunch of states, a United States. And I can't make that any more clear. Anybody who says this is a democracy is lying and he's actually perpetuating a fraud. We are not a democracy. Article five. Now, here's, this is important because this has to do with the amending of the Constitution. And with what it says, there are two ways to do this. Remember that the convention for um, that put together the Constitution was a convention of states. And later on, the the convention of states uh, created the Bill of Rights. This uh, this article five says, quote, the Congress, whenever two thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution. The second option is, quote, or on the application of the legislatures of two thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three fourths of the several states or by convention and three fourths thereof, as one or the other modes of ratification may be proposed by Congress. This is important because now we have a one-party Washington federal government, and they are not going to propose amendments that's going to restrict their power. Therefore, with the second part of this article, uh, it's really the only solution we have to things like term limits and balancing budgets and such, and that's uh, it's available. Currently, we have about 19 or 20 states have signed on to uh, limiting the federal government, and when we get to 34, I believe, then there'll be it'll go out to be um, uh, in a convention where it'll be ratified or sent to the legislature to ratify. And if and if three fourths agree, then it becomes law, and the people in Washington don't have a thing to say about it. So, going back to um, our Christian heritage, at the very end of the of the uh, Constitution, there's a, a statement that it was, quote, done in convention by the unanimous consent of the states present the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1787, and the independence of the United States of America, the 12th, and witness thereof. We have heretofore subscribed our names. George Washington was the first, and many others were there. So for people that say this isn't a Christian uh, a Christian constitution, there's the proof. There's the, the year of our Lord, and also relating to the accepting Sundays. So it's it, there are people that argue today just don't know the Constitution. It's important that we remember that these sorts of things when we debate with these uh, these people who are trying to push their their version of uh, democracy on our constitutional republic. Okay, now after the Constitution ratified, uh, there's are passed and it had to be ratified, and that took a period of years to get there. But by 1789, uh, we had a uh, 
the Constitution was ratified by enough of nine of the, of the 13, and it became the law of the land. And from that, then George Washington was uh, uh, elected to be uh, the president. And But soon thereafter, in these debates from 1787 to 1789, when we in fact became the United States of America under our Constitution, uh, there was questions like, well, sure, we've got this, this document this is a framework for our federal government and for how the states relate to one another. However, what about the little guy? Where, where are they protected in all of this? So it was originally it was the um, uh, concerns about the average guy who caused the rebellion to, to rise. So as a result of it, then James Madison and others and, and Congress agreed that uh, they would be able to have a Bill of Rights, an amendment to the Constitution that dealt specifically with limiting the federal government from intruding into the personal lives of, uh, of uh, the people. So. Here we have uh, a preamble to the Bill of Rights. And again, I'm trying to get you to understand what's going on in the heads of these guys when they created this country. And you, and you can look all this stuff up online, by the way. The Convention of Members of the States, having at the time of their adopting the Constitution, express a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers, that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added and extending the ground of public confidence in government and best ensure the benefits ends of its institutions. The Bill of Rights designed to constrain the government, right? From the little guy. And so it goes on. There's several uh, articles in there. We hear about these things, the First Amendment, the, the uh, Congress not making any law respecting the establishment of a religion, which was what, King Henry VIII did when he made the, became uh, the Anglican Church, became the religion of England. And we see what Catholic Church and other places was the maiden religion. And, and they used the, the political power of that, uh, in addition to just pure political power, to control people. So the Congress itself was never going to create a religion. And at that time, the religion also was considered to be denomination. So it wasn't like Christianity versus Muslims or uh, Jewish or, or anybody else. It just had religion in general. was, was It's still uh, a Christian country, but it had to do with denominations. Like in Maryland, you had Catholics and Virginias and, and North Carolina. You had Anglicans. Uh, and, and did Baptists, and I believe in Rhode Island or something like that. And then you had the in Pennsylvania, the Quakers. So it was, it was diverse. And they had to try to get away from any one of those dominating. So that's why that's in there. Okay, and then prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The free exercise of religion meant conscience. It's a free exercise of your conscience to determine what is right for you. And it's not that you have to, you know, have to have some church or something involved. It's just you and how you think and how you feel. So if you feel that that's, you know, this is your principles, it's a free exercise of your religion, whether it's Christianity or not. So uh, the and abridging the freedom of speech. Now, a lot of people misunderstand that the freedom of speech is not just uh, you get down the street and protest. This has to do with the government constraining speech. And the courts in the past have said, you know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You're going to cause, in other words, you can't go saying stuff that's going to cause harm. And this is what they're getting uh, President Bush or President Trump trouble over with the so-called uh, January 6th mess. Mm -hmm. But it's uh, 
free speech was to go and complain about the government. And it wasn't about getting mad at your neighbor or something like that, you know. And you can use profanity if you want to. That's a mark on you, not on anybody else. Might be restricted, people don't like it, but you could do it. Uh, then the, the free expression of the press. The press is the media. And basically, it's the only business that is specifically protected by the Constitution. So the press could go and do all kinds of crazy stuff, and there's not much you can do about it. Uh, unless you can file lawsuits for defamation and stuff like that. But if you're a public figure, it's really tough to get away with that because you're expected you put yourself out in the public domain. Uh, you're expected to take a lot of slings and arrows. That's just the way it goes. But the press is protected by the Constitution and it's something they jealously guard. Now, the next part is the right of the people to peaceably assemble. So you can all get together peaceably and you can petition the government for redress of your grievances. So that's something that was unheard of at the time. You, you know, in England, you couldn't go up to the king and say, hey, I don't like this. and throw you in the, in the Tower of London or something, you know, and never to be seen again. So the, the, uh, that was that First Amendment came out specifically in response to the problems that they had with King George. So the uh, after the... Um, after the amendments were passed, and there's others that we have, uh, uh, oh, oh, wait, one other point on the, the matter of religious freedom, this talk about the separation of church and state, it really should be the separation of state from church. And of course, we know the stories, Danbury Baptist and a letter from Thomas Jefferson, and how that's been misconstrued to say that, that you cannot speak uh, about politics from the pulpit. That's a bunch of hogwash. The, the American Revolution was uh, basically the ideas for, for liberty came from the pulpit and from the Black Brigade, and they were so feared and hated by the British that if you were a minister, uh, you had to be careful. You weren't just uh, uh, captured and put on one of those prison ships on the East River and set there to die. Uh, the Black Brigade was... was uh, and very much instrumental on laying the foundation for what it is to be freedom, what it is for our freedom. And I think we talked about this before with Thomas Paine's common sense. But it was so bad that uh, at the time of the, before we won our war for independence, if you were in America and you printed a Bible, there was this real strict violation of British law. Uh, they'd, they'd take you away and you, you wouldn't be seen again. So as, as a result of these restrictions of the freedom of, of religion, uh, the exercise of religion became extremely important towards uh, providing the message of freedom. And as I say, with the, when they say separation of church and state, it really should be a separation of state from church. And incidentally, that whole idea came from the Knights Templars we, we discussed on previous uh, podcasts. The, uh, but the first thing that Congress did once it was established is that it printed 20,000 Bibles for the purpose of giving them to the Indians, the natives, to hopefully make them more westernized, if you will, and to get them more in, in line with, with what we thought was the, you know, the, the, the way they, they should live. It was a little tough going. A lot of them did convert to it, but it was a little tough going. Was we, if you follow the Indian Wars on the Eastern Frontier, you can see that it wasn't it wasn't easily accepted with all the comings and goings over property rights and such. Uh, we touched on that with the French and Indian War. But the um, uh, we go on to the Second Amendment, and that is a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. 
remember the the Bill of Rights, Article the Second Amendment, was to constrain the federal government from taking your guns. Well, why is that important? Remember the Minutemen; they were the ones that, that gave us uh, started the war for independence, and it was basically people taking their own guns to the field because you know we didn't have an army, we didn't really have the kind of money to go buy weapons. Uh, everybody took their own flintlock. But I think that if you fast forward that to the time of World War II, and after World War II, we had won. And there was one of the, the Japanese generals said something to the effect, I can't get a direct quote, but we would never invade America. We knew we could never win if we invaded the mainland because there's so, so many of those people have guns. The Second Amendment. The, the purpose was to constrain government. Self-defense is a part of it, yes. The right of the people to keep and bear arms. Self-defense is a part of it. But it's to keep the government from ever coming and taking over our freedoms. 350 million guns in America, something to that effect, maybe more. They talk all the time about gun control, gun compensation, common sense, gun laws, but, you know, it's, the gun doesn't kill anybody. It's the, what's in the hand that, that does the act. And there's people that are hit in the head with hammers that were killed, too, and axes and all other implements of destruction. And it's never talked about constraining the, the sale of, say, an axe or hammers. But it's always about guns. So when the left talks about the uh, common sense gun laws, what they're talking about is they don't want to have to face the barrel of gun when they try to take over the freedoms that America has, has enjoyed for over hundreds of years. Keep that in mind with this. This is about keeping the government under control. All of these amendments, but that's, that's really the reset button right there. And I think because it exists, it has prevented us from becoming a police state, although they keep trying. Now, the Third Amendment has to do with quartering soldiers. Now, this doesn't apply to us anymore, but at the time, the British felt that they were, in order to keep us safe from additional attacks from the Indians, that they had to keep soldiers in our, our individual homes without our permission. So it was put in there to keep that from happening again, that you couldn't say, look, you know, the government couldn't say, you better take a soldier in your house. We're not paying for his, you know, where they stay. You got to have him there. He's got to live with you and you got to take care. So that's all that you can't do that anymore. That's the third amendment. Now, fourth amendment becomes important. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. And that's a condensed version of the article, uh, the fourth amendment. Very important because this was the basis of the Roe versus Wade thing where about privacy, personal privacy. And your your home is your castle. They can't just come beating down the door and take you away. There's a process to it. There has to be a warrant. There has to be, in other words, charges in writing. And there has to be a responsible way to deal with this sort of thing. And we forget that. We are protected. Our, our personal rights, our, our, our personal uh, privacy is protected by the U.S. Constitution. Now, at the time that this was passed, the Constitution only applied to the federal government. But as we see later on, we get to the 14th Amendment, all of these, the whole Constitution applies to everybody through the 14th Amendment. Fifth Amendment, again, it's condensed. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. Notice life, liberty, or property. Remember, in the Declaration of Independence is life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. Those are the words. This is what's going on through their heads. 
life, liberty, and property with due process. Due process meant that there was a way to do this. They just couldn't come overwhelm you and run off with whatever they're doing. And they had, if they took something or they forced you to, to uh, give something up, they had to give you fair compensation for it. It's like they're putting in a, you know, a naval uh, uh, base or something in some city and somebody owns a property and they need, the, they need that for national security. That person is to be entitled to just compensation for the loss of that property. So the due process is, is, is really one of the hallmarks of American justice is due process. And as, as one that had been through the, a victim of due process with a lack thereof, I, mean, I can tell you my firsthand experience is extremely important to preserve your freedom. Sixth Amendment as has to do, and this is another condensed version, uh, quote, in, in criminal prosecution, the accused will have the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and direct where, wherein the crime shall have been committed. So you couldn't take somebody who lived in, say, New York or Florida and then say they're in New York and try to try them over there. It has to be in a place where it was committed. And I bring that to mind with the way President Trump was treated here. The um, And also part of that amendment is that you had to have a writ or a piece something in paper with the accusations in writing and with, and with the law that says the law that was used as a basis of this accusation has to be plain. And we see again with the president in New York, that was not the case. There was no such law ever um, stated in that, that kangaroo court. But you have a right to the lawyer cross-examination to see who's, you know, to confront your witnesses against you and trial by an impartial jury. Uh, the Seventh Amendment has to do with with lawsuits and anything over twenty dollars, which today is ridiculous, uh, and it, that has to follow the same approach, or same protocol as a trial, criminal trial, and that you have the right to a trial jury and all that sort of stuff. The uh, Eighth Amendment, or seven, yeah, Eighth Amendment, uh, has to do with excessive bail. Uh, and cannot you can't just throw somebody in jail and say okay uh, we're going to keep you there by making a, a gazillion dollars bail. Well, today we see a lot of these the DAs uh, are are pulling that so you don't have to have bail at all. I mean it is a, it's a little bit tough for people that uh, of lower income status with to come up with bail money, but that was the idea was that you excessive bail, nor excessive fines. Uh, and nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. Very interesting with, with the death penalty. You know, at one time, a capital crimes where people were hung and they would say, well, that's cruel because, you know, of course it was publicly done, uh, but that's cruel. They, they're struggling and therefore it's not, a, it's not humane. So they come up with firing squads, which was, you know, much quicker. Then they said, that's not fair. So they're going to have to go. They went with the electric chair and the electric chair for a long time was just smoking people. And so that would turned out to be a mess. So then they went to this uh, lethal injection stuff. And that's a problem. A lot of those people didn't just go. I mean, we have euthanasia with animals where we see that it's, it can be, it's routinely done. But when it comes to people, it's, it's, it's much different because they know what's going on. So I think right now they're going back to firing squad where they have uh, eight or 10 uh, uh, riflemen. Uh, one has a blank and then they, it's quickly done. But the idea of cruel and unjust punishment, uh, that's an extreme example of it. But you, you can sort of from there down, you can figure that out. On to the, uh, the 10th Amendment. I'm sorry, the 9th Amendment. The um, 
here's the original. The, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. It's not a total comprehensive document. You compare it like the Constitution of Russia, which is, you know, volumes. You have more laws than I know what to do with. It's, the idea was that these are the things that keeps the government functioning and it keeps it under control. But anything else that's out there is really up to the people. In other words, up to the voter. Tenth Amendment said powers not delegated to the by the, the United States in the Constitution, uh, nor prohibited uh, by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people, the voters. Remember what I said about the direct elections of the senators. This basically, uh, that was a, a power that was reserved by the states uh, to to keep the interests of the states uh, in front of Washington. Now we see that the damages that we've seen by the repeal of the 17th Amendment is obvious. We don't have the kind of checks and balances that the original founders envisioned because of changing the direct election of senators. So just to reiterate, um, we had these laws. Uh, we had a constitution, we had a bill of rights, which basically said the, all these things are, but it all depended upon the, the voluntary cooperation of the, the states and the, and the people to follow them. There was no real uh, strength behind it. if Somebody violated these things. So after the civil war, uh, there was uh, the Jim Crow laws were, that were popular in the South. We said, basically, if you were, uh, if you weren't one of the good old boys and they accused you of a crime, it could be a, a crime looking for a man or a man looking for a crime, uh, you lost. And because of that, uh, under, you know, pretending to be the power of the government, the color of the law, the word is used, using that people's, their civil rights defined in the constitution, the federal constitution, were being violated and state constitution. So in, um, Civil Rights Act of 1871. I'm just throwing it in here because we'll get back to this later on. Whenever the color of the law is used to violate the civil rights of any American, that person who's unjustly had their, their rights violated, and so I see a lot of cops are, are being sued for this, there's a remedy in that. You can go back against those government officials and file lawsuits against them. Let me read this to you. Section 1983 of the U.S. Title 42 of the Civil Rights Act of 1871 provides, quote, every person who under color of any statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of any state or territory or the District of Columbia subjects or causes to be subjected, any citizen of the United States or other person within the jurisdictions thereof, to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws shall be liable to the party injured in an action of law and suit in equity or other proper proceedings for redress. Before we had the War of Independence, when the tax collectors in Boston started giving everybody a hard time, they took matters into their own hands. They would make dummies out of straw and clothing and they'd set them on fire and they'd hang them up you know, and walk around and mock them. And in more severe cases, they would drag these guys out into the street. They'd pour tar on them and feather them and they'd carry them around for a while. But being covered with tar can be fatal. 
Uh, if you block up every pore in the body, it's just like Goldfinger. If you remember the movie with James Bond and everything, Goldfinger, you couldn't do it because your body couldn't breathe and you could die. Uh, but that's what they did. Now, they also, the other things is that if it got to be too bad, they went and they burned your house down. So if you were you know, a government official and you're really haughty and you didn't get along with everybody, uh, they, they would take matters into their own hands. Well, we don't do that today. But this clause, Section 1983 of the Civil Rights Act of 1871, allows anybody whose civil rights have been violated, whether it be dog catcher or president of the United States, you have a remedy in court. And if you if this is severe enough, you could bankrupt those people. They don't they're not protected by sovereign immunity, which means that the government's uh, protecting everybody and you can't sue them. That doesn't apply. It means the individual who's acting under the power of government screws you over. Go after them. And this needs to be done on a real large scale across this country for these people in government to realize they work for us. We don't work for them. So that's the Bill of Rights. That's the foundation of American freedom, American liberty. And I really encourage you to, to think about some of the things I've said here, because this can, ha- this can happen to anybody, whether it be through your, your properties being uh, basically tied down with environmental regulations or, or somebody breaks into your house and you shoot them and they say that you commit murder or something like that. This is what the Bill of Rights is, what, what makes America uniquely American. And something we must protect and not allow people to just change it and will. Now, that's enough for today. I hope I didn't get you too confused. I mean, it can be. Of course, you can pick up my book and, and read this at your own leisure. Uh, the next session, I'm going to talk about how these additional amendments came about. And I'll be going back and forth to the foundation I've laid for you on the last issue and then on this one here too today. So once again, remember, might makes when might makes right, people live in bondage. When uh, right makes might, people are free. And when right becomes wrong, there's chaos until either might or right emerges. And people are either uh, living in freedom or further bondage. Again, Dr. Bill Choby discussing liberty in America, past, present, and future. I thank you for your attention today. And uh, I do hope you come back and listen to more of this. This is good stuff. Thanks a lot. And good night. <music>